Well, today is the first Sunday of Advent for the year 2022, and this year we will be looking at the Advent story as presented in the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning we will be considering Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. These are the words of God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amenadab, Amenadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah. And Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram. And Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz. And Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Albion, Albion begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achan. And Achim begot Eliad. Eliad begot Eliezer. Eliezer, Eliezer. I thought I was going to make it through that. <laughs> Eliezer begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob. Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Our God and Father, we pray now open up the beginning of this wondrous gospel story, the Advent story of when you sent and brought about the incarnation. You brought your son into the world to save the world. Open it to us in all its glory, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you see, Matthew opens his gospel and the Advent story with a genealogy, which uh, would be a very Jewish thing to do, but it would seem to us moderns as a rather uneventful, let us say, perhaps you could even say boring way to open the New Testament. But what seems boring to us was an absolute bombshell to the first century Jews. And it wasn't the genealogy per se. There are lots of genealogies in the Old Testament. It's Matthew's opening line in the Greek, Biblos Genesios Jesu Christu, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. And generations is the correct translation. There's a different word for genealogy. We'll come back to that later. 
the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. The reason why that phrase would have jumped out so much in the first century is that it is an exact quote of Genesis chapter 5 verse 1 in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Genesis 5.1 in the Septuagint refers to the book of the generations of Adam. And the only other place where that exact language appears is Genesis 2 verse 4, which refers to the book of the generations of the heavens and the earth. So you have the book of the generations of Adam and the book of the generations of the heavens and the earth, two cosmic things of significance that were tied together. For as Adam went, so went mankind. And you have to remember, mankind was Adamkind, because Adama in the Hebrew is simply the word for man. That was Adam's name. So mankind was Adamkind, and as Adam went, so went mankind, and so went the entire earthly creation connected to him. And so you see, the whole Old Testament was the book of the generations of Adam. It was the story of the human race that came from him, and the heavens and the earth in which they dwelt, and which were tied to Adam. It was the history of Adam and his descendants. It was the story of who Adam was, what Adam did, and how that determined the destiny of all who came from him and the heavens and the earth that were tied to him. But now Matthew is opening the New Testament with the declaration that it is the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. That would have snapped every Hebrew head around. What exactly is Matthew saying? Well, first of all, he's giving us the title of the New Testament. The formal name of the New Testament is the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. Just as the Old Testament was the book of the generations of Adam. Second, Matthew is announcing in so many words, that Jesus is a new Adam. He is the new head of a new human race, and he is the inaugurator and ruler of a new heavens and a new earth. Matthew, in effect, is saying to everyone everywhere, you are not living in the same world that we read about in the Old Testament. You're not living in the same world that existed from creation until Jesus. It may look the same on the surface, but it isn't the same. Because Jesus Christ is the ultimate game changer. He has changed everything. He has made everything new. And nothing will ever be the same. And we will come back to that later. But for now, you see why Matthew's opening line was such a bombshell to his first century audience. And the question that would have popped into everyone's mind is, how? How can this be true that Jesus from Nazareth of all places, son of a carpenter, how can he be a new Adam 
the father of a new human race and the inaugurator of a new heavens and a new earth? That's the question that everything else in the New Testament was written to answer. And Matthew begins that answer in the very next phrase by telling us that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, by saying that, he is telling us, in a nutshell, that all of God's promises have been fulfilled by Jesus and have been inherited by Jesus. You see, all of God's promises, going back to the promise in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. From that moment on, all of God's promises were concentrated on two coming figures. Number one, the seed or son of Abraham, and number two, the son of David. Now, there are just tons of scriptures in the Old Testament showing that, but I'll just point out a few. In Genesis 22, at verse 15, the angel of the Lord calls to Abraham, and he says in verse 18, In your seed, and the Hebrew word is singular, in your seed singular, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Paul talks about this in Galatians 3, verse 8. The gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations will be blessed. Then he explains, verse 16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So all of the promises to Abraham, all of which were gospel promises, that's what was in view, were inherited by the seed or son of Abraham, who is Jesus Christ. And then we have God's promises to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 5, Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Verse 16, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now David did not live forever. He died and he was buried. His tomb was still with the Israelites in the first century. They could go visit it. And Peter points that out in his Pentecost sermon recorded in Acts chapter 2. So this is not talking about David himself. It's talking about a son who will come from the lineage of David and who will sit on a worldwide everlasting throne. Isaiah picks up on that promise in a well-known Christmas passage in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And that's why when the angel Gabriel appears to the Virgin Mary in Luke chapter 1, he says to her, 
verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So Jesus is the promised seed or son of Abraham and the promised son of David. All of God's promises have both been fulfilled and inherited by Jesus Christ. So that's what Matthew is declaring in verse 1. First, Jesus is a new Adam. Second, Jesus is the promised seed or son of Abraham who has received all the blessings of Abraham. And third, Jesus is the promised son of David who has sat down on David's throne over a worldwide everlasting kingdom. But Matthew's declarations, we understand what he's saying, big picture, but his declarations raise as many questions as they answer. Because once again, what pops into our minds is how? And that's what they would have been thinking in the first century. How? How has this Jesus of Nazareth accomplished what neither Abraham nor David nor any of David's royal sons could accomplish? And Matthew's answer is, read on. And that's where Matthew's genealogy proper comes in, uh, beginning in verse 2. And Matthew, we need to realize, doesn't just give us a bloodline for Jesus' adopted father, Matthew, here. He's telling us through this genealogy, and this is another very Hebrew thing to do. He is telling us a story through this genealogy by wrapping a riddle inside an enigma, all in the coded language of a genealogy. Now, it is a true genealogy. It is showing, um, humanly speaking, back through Matthew, uh, Jesus' lineage. But it is also telling us a story by wrapping a riddle inside an enigma. The enigma that Matthew presents is Israel. God's own special nation who began so gloriously with God miraculously delivering Israel from Egyptian slavery, bringing her across the Red Sea on dry ground, placing his presence in her midst in the tabernacle, writing his laws on her books so that all nations would come to stand in awe of her beauty and splendor and turn to faith in the living God. But in spite of this incomparable heritage, Israel was always missing out. She was always shooting herself in the foot. And it was always the same way. Unfaithfulness, turning away from the living God, turning to false gods. Centuries of Israel's history in the Old Testament, you have certain brief points of national faithfulness, but the trend is ever downward toward unfaithfulness. And ultimately, that landed Israel in captivity to Babylon and brought about the destruction of Jerusalem and the magnificent temple that Solomon had built. Seventy years later, in the providence of God, Israel had been permitted to return to Jerusalem 
and ultimately to rebuild the walls and the temple. But in many ways, you see, it did not seem like a true return from captivity. Politically, Israel remained under the control of one ancient pagan Mediterranean empire after another. First, it was the Babylonians. Then it was the Medes and the Persians. Then it was the Greeks under Alexander the Great. And then finally, it was the Romans. And the thing is, Israel's spiritual state matched her political situation because she continued her long-standing trend toward unfaithfulness to God. And it would all come to a head with Israel rejecting, judicially framing, and arranging for the crucifixion of her long-awaited Messiah, the son of Abraham and the son of David. You see, the bottom line was, Israel was in a different kind of captivity that was far deeper than political captivity. The Israelites were captive in their hearts to the real Pharaoh, the cosmic Pharaoh, Satan, who held them in the ultimate bondage, bondage to sin and death. And so Israel not only needed a new exodus, she needed a new kind of exodus, one that would deliver her from her real captivity, one that would make the first exodus, though it was a great historical event, make it seem like nothing by comparison. Matthew makes this very point very cleverly in his genealogy in this way. Notice that four different times Matthew mentions Israel's captivity to Babylon. Verse 11, they were carried away to Babylon. Verse 12, they were brought to Babylon. Verse 17, twice. First, from David to the captivity of Babylon are 14 generations. And then again, from the captivity of Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. Over and over and over, Matthew keeps bringing up Israel's captivity to Babylon. You know what's missing from this genealogy? Any return from captivity. There's no return ever mentioned. And the point is, is that she may have physically returned from Babylon. Spiritually, she never did. Spiritually, she never really had an exodus to begin with. Spiritually, she was never set free in her heart. Now, throughout the Old Testament, individual Israelites were clearly regenerate and set free by the Spirit of God. You can think of uh, well, you can think of Abraham, you can think of Moses, you can think of Aaron and Miriam and Joshua and Caleb, and all the way down to the first century. You can think of Joseph and Mary, you can think of Zacharias and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. These are individual Israelites who were clearly regenerate by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit. The point is, Israel as a whole... Israel, if you consider her as a whole nation, was not regenerate. And that was evidenced by the fate of the very generation that came out of Egypt. They're applying the blood of the Passover lamb at one moment. 
being delivered from the angel of death. They're being brought out of Egypt. They're walking across the Red Sea on dry ground. And then the next minute, they're forming a golden calf to worship it and saying, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. And so many of that generation ended up dying in the desert. That is the point that Matthew is making. And he continues to drive that point home by bringing up some specific instances of Israel's unfaithfulness, some specific examples. And he does this by doing something very unusual for ancient genealogies. He includes four women, three of whom are Gentiles. By mentioning these four women whom God providentially wove into the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew is calling to mind very vividly to anyone who knows the Old Testament scriptures just how wayward the children of Israel were and how it was only by the sheer grace of God that he continued with Israel over the centuries. The first woman Matthew mentions is Tamar in verse 3. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, Tamar was the Gentile wife of Judah's eldest son, Ur, who was so wicked that the Lord took his life, Genesis 38, 6 and 7. And then the Lord did the exact same thing to Judah's second son, Onan, who was also very wicked. Now, it's not very often that Scripture tells us that someone was so wicked that the Lord put them to death. But with Judah, it was true of his first two sons. And sadly, the way those two boys turned out was an accurate reflection of Judah's walk as a man at that time. You see, after Judah and his brothers sold their youngest brother, Joseph, into pagan slavery something that Judah himself had suggested, Judah had separated from his father's family, and he had gone to live among pagans, and he fit in very well. He even took an unbelieving Canaanite wife. Judah was basically a scoundrel. Now Tamar, Judah's widowed daughter-in-law, was the only righteous person in this entire scenario that Matthew is evoking. Tamar was the only one in the entire episode that was actually interested in doing what God said. And at the end of the episode, Judah himself confesses that Tamar was righteous and he was not. Tamar, you see, had to disguise herself as a prostitute, quite possibly a pagan temple prostitute, and tricked Judah into fulfilling his God-given duty to his deceased son to raise up heirs for him and continue his line. And so Judah, thinking Tamar is a prostitute, goes into her. Then three months later... When she is pregnant and she can no longer hide the pregnancy, Judah finds out and is determined to burn her alive for practicing harlotry. 
The only thing that spared Tamar's life is that when Judah had come into her, she had taken a pledge of payment consisting of Judah's staff, his seal, and his cord, which she now publicly produced to prove the identity of the man who had impregnated her. Well, Judah had to confess that the items were his and that Tamar was not guilty of immorality and that she, in fact, was more righteous than he was. You can read about this in Genesis 38, 11 through 26. Now, going forward, let me just tell you that the Lord is not going to leave Judah in this very sad estate. The Lord is going to bring him back to the faith of Abraham. But I'm not going to go into details about that this morning because soon enough in our study of Genesis, we will be getting to this very episode and we will go into it in more detail. The point we need to see this morning is that Judah left to himself in spite of all the spiritual covenant blessings of his family was a scoundrel. He was a scoundrel. And the fact that he became a righteous man was solely due to God's grace and God's intervention in his life. That, and that's a picture of Israel as a whole. The second and third women Matthew mentions are Rahab, the harlot of Jericho, and Ruth, the Moabitess. Verse 5, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Now Ruth, the harlot of Jericho, is in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, specifically verse 31, because she was the one person in Jericho who trusted in the God of Israel. And she saw, she showed that faith by hiding the Israelite spies and then lying to the authorities to protect them. You can read about that in Joshua chapter 2, also Hebrews 11.31. As a result, she is the one person in Jericho who, along with her family, was spared from the invasion. And as we go forward in history, Rahab will become the wife of Salmon and will in fact be David's great-great-grandmother. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. Ruth also was a Gentile woman, but like Rahab, she became a woman of great faith in the God of Israel. So she left her own family. She left her own country. She left all of her native, native idols to serve and support the God of Israel and to serve her elderly mother-in-law, Naomi, from whom she learned faith in the one true God. But she's going to serve in a foreign land a mother-in-law who is destitute and elderly. There is no, by no normal human reckoning, is there any future there for Ruth. But she refuses to leave her mother-in-law's side. And God is going to show kindness to Ruth in the land of Israel and through Ruth to Naomi. For Ruth will marry Boaz, a righteous and faithful man, 
And Ruth will become the great-grandmother of David the king. So in Rahab and Ruth, these two Gentile women, we see the kind of faith and devotion and constancy and faithfulness that Israel should have exhibited, but never did. Finally, there is Bathsheba, whom Matthew doesn't actually name, but he refers to as she who had been the wife of Uriah in verse 6. Now, Uriah is named because, like Tamar in Genesis 38, uh, Uriah uh, was a Gentile, served in David's army, was a believer in the God of Israel, and in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, he is the only righteous person. He's the only one who's concerned with serving the Lord and doing what the Lord requires. Now, you know the story. Uriah is out fighting Israel's battles with the army, where David should have been. But David is whiling around the palace. He spots Bathsheba bathing, sends for her. She comes. They sleep together. She comes up pregnant. David tries to cover it up by having Uriah summoned from the front lines, thinking that if Uriah Uriah is home... He will sleep with his wife, and everyone will assume the child is his. The thing is, Uriah won't go home because he regards it as a betrayal of his brothers who are sleeping on the ground out in the field of battle. He won't go home. Then David tries to get Uriah drunk. He does everything he can to break down Uriah's sense of principle and to send him home, but nothing Works, And then David takes the darkest turn in his entire life. He tells his general Joab to have Uriah killed and to make it look like an accident, an incident of war. And sure enough, Uriah is killed and to make it look like an accident, other men whose names we do not even know, they died too. Other wives were rendered widows. Other children were rendered orphans. The darkest turn in David's life. So you have adultery, you have lies, you have cover-up, you have murder. And these were the actions of David, the man after God's own heart. And we're tempted to get cynical with that and go, yeah, David, right, the man after God's own heart. No, see, the point is, He really was the man after God's own heart. He wrote most of the Psalms, including Psalm 51, his penitential prayer from this incident, which still today is the model of confession and repentance. And indeed, David's Psalms are the model of piety, love and devotion to God to this very day. The point is, For David, and therefore for the rest of us, we are completely dependent on God's grace and his faithfulness to us to sustain us every step of the way. If he lets go of our hand, we immediately begin to go downhill. So as Matthew points out in verse 17 of our text, 14 generations of Davidic kings landed Israel in captivity to Babylon. 
And another 14 generations left her there, at least spiritually speaking. What Israel needs is a new kind of son of David and a new kind of exodus. And that's where Jesus comes in. Jesus is the riddle that Matthew inserts into the enigma of Israel. And the riddle is this. If Jesus has descended from Abraham and David, if he is the son of Abraham and the son of David, how can he also be their father? If he descended from them, how can it be that he gave birth to them? Because you see, if you have a genealogy, that means you descended from other humans. But if you have a book of generations, it means you are a primogenitor. You are the father of an entire race. A book of generations doesn't have any humans up the line from you because you come from the hand of God, just like Adam did. And then the whole race comes from you. How can you have a genealogy and a book of genera- uh, uh, generation? How can Jesus be the son of Abraham and David and yet at the same time their father? Now, just so you know that I'm not making this up, I'm not reading too much stuff in here, we find this in the prophets. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, this is another uh, great Christmas passage. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. So we got a branch who's going to grow out of the roots of Jesse. He's going to come from the lineage of David. But then in verse 10, it says this. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. So which is it? Is this one to come? Is this a branch of Jesse? Or is this a root of Jesse? Because a branch and a root are not the same thing. Branch comes from the root. The root does not come from the branch. You're one or the other. It's not both. But this one says that this person whose resting place shall be glorious, whom the Gentiles shall see. He shall be a branch who grows out out of the roots of Jesse, and at the same time he shall be the root of Jesse. This is the exact same thing which Jesus himself claims in Revelation 22, verse 16, when he says, I, Jesus, am the root and offspring of David. That's the riddle of Jesus. How can both of those be true? Well, that is where the incarnation comes in, which we will begin to talk about next week. But Matthew doesn't start there. He starts by giving us the riddle of Jesus wrapped inside the enigma of Israel. Because you see, until we realize that Israel was hopeless and helpless, even with all that God had done for her, even with all of her covenant privileges. And until we realize that Israel was a representative nation, she was a microcosm of the human race. 
So when Israel was there saying, give us Barabbas, not Jesus. When Israel was there saying, we have no king but Caesar. That was us, folks. We were all there. We were all there saying, we have no king but Caesar. We were all there saying, give us Barabbas, not Jesus. Because Israel was a representative nation. What it means is that because Israel was completely hopeless and helpless, even with all her blessings and privileges, that means the entire human race is hopeless and helpless, even if you were to give us all kinds of covenant privileges and blessings, which are good in and of themselves. But until you change the heart, until you make dead people alive, until you awaken faith, until you grant repentance, until you bring people to their senses so that they escape the snare of the devil, none of which any of us can do, until you do that, covenant privileges and blessings don't matter. They're there to be a blessing, but they just end up increasing condemnation because they do not produce the fruit that should be there because you're dealing with dead people. That's the whole point. Until we're able to grasp this, that Israel and the whole human race is hopeless and helpless, we're not ready for the incarnation. We're not ready for the incarnation until we understand there is no other way. Only then are we ready, and we will look at that next week. As we conclude this morning... I just want to consider briefly the implications of Matthew's declaration that we're no longer living in the book of the generations of Adam, but the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. In that sense, we're not living in the same world that existed before or in the same history that existed before the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Now, vestiges of the old world still exist. We still look out and see it. But the thing is, they can't stand... For Christ has fundamentally changed the nature of heaven and earth. Consider this. Heaven has been compositionally changed because with the ascension of Jesus for the first time ever in history, a man has been glorified and received into the very presence of God in heaven and seated on his throne. Heaven became a different place. For the first time since the Garden of Eden, Satan has no more standing in the courtroom of God. You can read about that in Revelations chapter 12. For with Jesus risen and ascended, Satan has no more legal claim over mankind in the earth, and thus he was thrown out of heaven. He cannot come strolling into the throne room of God like we see him doing in the book of Job. Heaven as well as earth are governmentally changed. With Jesus' ascension for the first time ever, there is a man seated on the throne of God with all authority in heaven and on earth and with all judgment committed into his hands. Jesus says in John chapter 5, the Father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the Son. And finally, the earth and uh, mankind are metaphysically changed. 
because Jesus poured out his spirit upon man and the earth at the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, causing his spirit to indwell his disciples, making them his living temple, also empowering his kingdom as his spirit causes men, women, and children to be made alive unto God, to be born again to the living hope that is in Christ. So Christ, through his spirit, has poured out his kingdom leaven into the world. And just like in a recipe, once you put the leaven in, there's no going back. The leaven may be very, very small compared to the other ingredients. It may look like nothing. What difference can it make? Well, just put it in there and wait and watch. Because once it goes in, there's no going back. It's just a matter of time because that leaven, like, unlike every other ingredient, the leaven's alive. And it's going to spread. It's not going to stay where you put it. It's not like a pecan. It's not like a chocolate chip. It's going to move everywhere. It's going to go everywhere. And everything it touches, it's going to make alive. And so the whole recipe is going to rise. That's what the kingdom leaven does. And so Christ has begun the transformation of mankind and the earth. You see, the resurrection of life upon the second uh, advent of Christ and the simultaneous deliverance of the earth from death and decay, those are the culmination, the perfection of the new heavens and the new earth. That's not their beginning. They began when Jesus ascended into heaven, sat down on the throne of God, and poured out his spirit. That's when the new heavens and new earth and the new history of mankind began. So Matthew opens the New Testament by giving us its title, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. And through that title, Matthew announces that it is done. The new human race born of the spirit of Christ has begun. And the new heavens and the new earth compositionally and governmentally have begun. Christ's leaven has been poured out into the world. There is no going back. Nothing will ever be the same. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.